0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Greg Fondell, and it's my privilege to speak with you again this Sunday. Uh, We're continuing in this series, FAQs, Friends Ask Questions. And today we're going to be looking at a question that non-believers as well as believers ask. Can the Bible be trusted? Before I begin, I want to acknowledge and recommend a very good source on this and other faith, faith questions. Uh, the Reason for God, uh, Belief in an Age of Skepticism by Timothy Keller. Uh, this book was very helpful to me in sorting through some of the arguments for and against the reliability of Scripture and also some really good responses to other faith questions that our friends are asking as well. I'd like to ask you to just bow with me in a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight O oh lord my rock and my redeemer amen one of the things that troubles people most about christianity is the bible they say something like like this there are many good things in the bible but you shouldn't insist that everyone believe and follow everything in it because there are some things in the bible that are just wrong things that are historically unreliable. We don't know what really happened or what was actually said. Much of the Bible is culturally regressive and promotes certain views that are best left behind. Even though there are good things in the Bible, don't insist on it being entirely trustworthy and completely authoritative in everything it says. So what do we say to that? Many people today say that the Bible, especially the New Testament, was concocted by people who had a political agenda. Who can ever really know what Jesus really was like? The idea that he claimed to be divine, he did miracles, he died on a cross, was raised to life, and people saw him. All those ideas, all those accounts, all those legends were created by church leaders who were trying to consolidate their power in order to build a movement. We really don't know what happened. What do we say to that? Well, I think first we say that we can trust the Bible historically. First, the New Testament accounts were written too early to be legends. When Luke wrote his story of Jesus' life, notice what he said to his readers in the very first few verses. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write on an orderly account for you. Now Luke was saying, that even though he was writing 30 to 40 years later, after Jesus' ministry, a lot of people who saw the resurrected Christ were still alive. He was inviting anyone who wanted to read his account to check his sources. Now, Paul wrote his letters only 15 to 20 years after Jesus' ministry. And in 1 Corinthians 15 5-7, through he states that Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection and that he even appeared to 500 people at one time. And Paul writes that most of these people were still alive. He couldn't have proposed a widely circulated document that there were still 500 living witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ unless that was really the case. In Philippians 2, 6-11, Paul quoted a hymn about Jesus' divinity. If Philippians was written only 15 years after the events of Christ's life, and the hymn that Paul was quoting had been written even earlier than that, we know that people were already worshiping Jesus. They believed his claims to be God. They believed the miracles. They believed the crucifixion and the death, and they believed The resurrection appearances. Let me give you three reasons why we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus. First, the New Testament accounts were written too early to be legends. Anyone could write an account 200 years later when all the eyewitnesses were dead and say whatever they wanted. But that person couldn't say Jesus was crucified and then resurrected when hundreds of people were still alive who had seen whether he had been or not. If Christ hadn't made these claims, if Christ hadn't been crucified, if Christ hadn't risen from an empty tomb, if there hadn't been appearances after his death, and these public documents were just going around claiming all these things to be true, well, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. Second, the New Testament documents are too counterproductive to be legends. The theory is that the Bible doesn't give us what actually happened. Instead, what you have in the Gospels is what the church leaders wanted people to believe happened. Because this helps them to consolidate their power and to build a movement. Really. Now, if I'm a church leader living 70 to 80 years after Jesus and I'm making up these stories, would I write about the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus asked his father if there was a way for him to escape the events that were about to take place? Would my account include Jesus crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such passages are confusing even today. If I was making up these stories, would I have mentioned that the first people who saw Jesus raised from the dead were women? At a time when women's testimony was not admissible in court because of their low social status. All four Gospels say that the original eyewitnesses were women. If you were making up these stories, in an effort to consolidate your power, you would never make women the first eyewitnesses. When you observe the apostles in the New Testament, they don't always make the strongest impressions. They sometimes look foolish. They sometimes look prideful and stubborn. They sometimes look cowardly. If you were a leader of the early church, would you make up stories that highlight those character flaws? Of course you wouldn't. The only possible explanation for these portrayals in the text is that they're true. Otherwise, they're counterproductive if these leaders were trying to build momentum for a movement. Finally, the New Testament documents are too detailed to be legends. One of the problems with saying that the gospel accounts are legends is that we don't know very much about ancient fiction. The novel or the short story as a literary form which is based on realistic fiction, well that doesn't appear until the 18th century. In ancient times, legends weren't recorded like that. You would never start a myth with a challenge to readers to test the facts. C.S. Lewis was an expert in ancient literature, and he wrote this about reading the Gospels. He said, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. With the Gospel texts, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer, without known present predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. Here's the point. The New Testament documents don't have the form of legends. They were written too early. The accounts would have been too counterproductive to anybody trying to start a political movement. And they don't match the fictional style of the day. They tell us what really happened. We can say that we trust the Bible historically. We can also say that we trust the Bible culturally. In our day, More people seem troubled by the cultural aspects of the Bible than the historical aspects. People read things in the Bible that they consider offensive or primitive. And they say, look at what that teaches. That's just awful. We've moved past that such a long time ago, and it's best for us to just leave it behind. I don't have enough time to go down the list of all the things in the Bible that offend people. It's a pretty long list, and it shifts around quite frequently. But I'd like to suggest three ways to handle any text of the Bible that offends you. First, when you encounter a passage of the Bible that strikes you as offensive, consider the possibility that it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. When I first started reading the book of Genesis, this was shortly after I'd become a pretty strong believer. Well, it was kind of upsetting to my modern sensibilities. Here are these spiritual heroes, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are dishonorable, especially in their treatment of women, as they engaged in polygamy, and they bought and they sold their wives as property. And then I read... Robert Alters, The Art of Biblical Narrative. And in this book, he states that there are two institutions present in the book of Genesis that were universal in ancient cultures. Polygamy and primogeniture. Polygamy allowed a husband to have multiple wives, and primogeniture determined that the oldest son got everything all the power, all the property, all the money. Now, Alter points out that when you read the book of Genesis, you'll see two things. First, that polygamy wreaks havoc in every generation. Having multiple wives was an absolute disaster, socially and culturally and spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally. Second, primogeniture is disrupted by God in every generation as he favors the younger son over the older. He favors Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Joseph, not his 12 older brothers. Alter says that the book of Genesis is actually subverting, not supporting those ancient institutions at every turn. And after reading Alter's book, I reread the book of Genesis, and I loved it. And then I thought, you know, what if I had just booted the Bible and the Christian faith, missing out on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because I couldn't understand the behavior that was going on with the patriarchs? The lesson is simple. Consider the possibility that Scripture might not teach what you think it's teaching. Second, whenever you encounter something in a text that seems offensive to you, consider the possibility that you're misunderstanding what the Bible teaches because of cultural blinders. The Bible is not a generic, cultureless, timeless blueprint for social utopia. It was written by particular authors for a particular audience in a particular culture at a particular time. And God has used that writing to move people forward one step at a time. You have to keep in mind the moral baseline of the human race after sin invaded creation. This was a barbaric world. We sometimes think that the world is wicked in our day, and that certainly is true. But we take for granted the 4,000 years of civilizing influence of the Judeo-Christian ethics. Before the law was given to the people of Israel, it was a cruel and violent age. Infanticide was commonly practiced. Women were generally treated as possessions. Masters could kill slaves without any provocation or threat of punishment. Worship was mostly religious and mostly ritualistic and superstitious. And it often included temple prostitution and human sacrifice. God had to start where people actually were. And that's what he did. Let me give you an example. A lot of folks ask the question, if the Bible really is God's word, why does it allow for practices like slavery? My own, in our own country, many used scripture to defend slavery. In the ancient world, slavery was everywhere. There was no social safety net. There was no welfare. If somebody went into debt, selling themselves into slavery would have been their only means of survival. A slavery-free society is not an economic or social possibility in that age. That's the world into which God's word comes. Now, here's what the writers of the scripture did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they constantly constrained and undermined the institution of slavery. They limit how much power a master has over a slave. They say a master cannot inflict any punishment he chooses on a slave. They say that slavery cannot be perpetual. After seven years, a master is to allow the slave to go free, and when that happens, the master actually has to give financial resources in order for the slave to be established in an independent life. And this was not going on anywhere else except in Israel. So compared to the ancient culture, the Old Testament is limiting the practice of slavery. Now, when you get to the New Testament, this is even more pronounced. Historian Murray Harris wrote a book about what slavery is like in the first century Greco-Roman world. He says that in Greco-Roman times, slaves looked and lived like everyone else, and they were never segregated from the rest of the society in any way. Slaves were often more educated than their owners, and many times they held high managerial positions. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers. They often earned back enough to pay back their debts and then were redeemed from their servitude. Paul wrote to Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus. And he said, instead of punishing him for running away, you ought to set him free because he has become like a brother to me. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, when you and I see the word slave in the Bible, we immediately think of 17th, 18th, and 19th century New World race-based lifelong slavery. When we read Scripture through those lenses, we aren't understanding what the Bible is teaching. The African slave trade was resourced by kidnapping which scripture absolutely condemns in De- Deuteronomy 24:7 and also in 1 Timothy 9:19 9, 9 through 11. So what happens is that 18th and 19th century Christians studied the trajectory of the Bible. How the Old Testament had changed the ancient culture into which it was written and advocated an even more egalitarian view in the New Testament. The great anti-slavery movements were led by Christians. William Wilberforce, John Wesley, the Quakers, and the Methodists, and the Congregationalists. When they realized that slavery was inconsistent with biblical teaching and ought to be abolished, We must also keep in mind that certain biblical texts might offend us because of an unexamined assumption of our culture's superiority. We might read a certain passage of Scripture and say, that is so backward, that is so unenlightened. But we ought to entertain the idea that maybe we feel that way because in our particular culture, that text is a problem the other cultures that that passage might not come across as regressive or offensive in any way in western societies we read what the bible says about sex and we have a problem with it but when we read what the bible says about forgiveness forgive your enemy forgive your brother 70 times 7 turn the other cheek when your enemy asks for your shirt Give him your cloak as well. And we read that and we say, isn't that wonderful? But in a Middle Eastern culture, they would think that what the Bible has to say about sex is pretty good. But when they read what the Bible says about forgiving your enemies, it strikes them as absolutely nuts. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural perspective trump everybody else's. If the Bible is really the revelation of God and it isn't the product of any one culture, wouldn't it contradict every culture at some point? If it's really from God, wouldn't it have to occasionally offend our cultural sensibilities? If you come to a passage and say, you know, I like a lot of things about the Bible, but not this part in the long run, that's a good thing. It will cause you to wrestle with that text, to see how God's Spirit might be stirring you, might be prodding you in some way. If we expect reading the Bible to change us, shouldn't we also expect it to challenge us? Unless you have the authoritative Scripture that can contradict and convict you You're running creating a God of your own making. When we encounter some hard-to-understand text that seems outrageous and offensive, isn't that proof that it's probably true? It's not a reason to say that the Bible isn't God's word. It's probably a reason to say it is. So first, we can trust the Bible historically. Second, we can trust the Bible culturally finally, we can trust the Bible personally. You know, it's often hinted that people who believe in the absolute authority of the Bible have a cold, legalistic kind of faith. A.J. Jacobs wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. It's a very good book, a very funny book. Jacob spent a whole year of his life committed to obeying God's commands through the Bible as literally as he could. So he grew a beard, and he dressed like Moses, and he ate kosher food. And the Old Testament commanded stoning Sabbath breakers, so he would prowl Central Park on Sundays looking for offenders. And he didn't want to get arrested, so he would secretly pelt them with little pebbles from behind and then look away. Of course, it's a bit absurd, but the point is that Jacobs is writing millions of people say that they take the Bible literally. A 2004 Newsweek poll put it at 55%, but my suspicion was almost always that everyone's literalism consisted of picking and choosing. People plucked out the parts that fit their agenda. Part of what Jacobs intended to show is that no one can take the Bible literally. Of course, lots of people do pick and choose, and that's a fair critique. But I think he's dead wrong. If you do what A.J. Jacobs did, if you treat the Bible naively, like a list of arbitrary and random rules, you don't really understand what Scripture is about. It's important to understand not just what the Bible is, but also what the Bible isn't. The Bible is not primarily a book of commands to follow, nor is it primarily a book of doctrines to believe. It's not an owner's manual. You know, my car has an owner's manual, but it's not the kind of thing that I read recreationally. You use your owner's manual to find out how to fix what's broken. And a lot of people think of the Bible in just that way, that it's supposed to be used to fix what's broken. What should I do if I have doubts? Page 32. What's the right belief about the end times? Well, that's on page 64. How do I deal with my kids? Page 12 through page 942. Did you ever notice that the Bible isn't arranged like that? The Bible has commands. It has materials that form theology and doctrine. But it's not mostly that. The Bible is primarily a story. It's a narrative. It has an arc to it. The Bible is a story not only because we have short attention spans and like stories better... We need to understand that a story carries authority. In Great Britain, during World War II, there were lots of policies and regulations and about rationing gas and deploying industry and signing up for the draft. And there were a lot of beliefs during World War II. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's freedom? What's the right strategy? In London, there was a bow-tie-wearing, cigar-chomping prime minister living at number 10 Downing Street, and his name was Winston Churchill, and he told this story. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. If we can stand, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail then the whole world and all that we have known and cared for will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. Let us therefore so bear ourselves that if the British Empire lasts a thousand years, men still will say this was their finest hour. And Churchill told that story, and people said, I'll give my life for that. And it wasn't only the artistry of Churchill's words was the power of the story. All kinds of commands and beliefs and regulations existed during World War II, but they only made sense when you grasp the story. The Bible says that all stories are part of one great story. Meaning depends on a broader context for its significance. One of the views of postmodernism says, there is no great story. It's all just random. It's all just an accident. We are all just flotsam and jetsam. There's no meaning to it all. And the Bible says, there is a story. And your story and my story will have significance when they intersect with this great story. And the hero of the story is Jesus. And he began his ministry with these words. The time is fulfilled. Now what does that mean? It means that everything that God had been doing had all been leading to this culmination. What an incredible announcement. After Jesus' resurrection, he was talking with two downcast disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, 27, we're told, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That word, all, is very important here. The idea that is not just that Jesus was fulfilling a few prophecies, It's much bigger than that. What Jesus is saying is, now you get the whole story. Now you understand in a way that no one has before what it all means, what God has been doing, everything, the whole story, creation, fall, Israel. It has been leading up to me. And the travelers on the road to Emmaus spoke of their time with Jesus saying, we're not our hearts burning within us as, we, as he opened to us the scriptures. When we speak of the heart, we think of it as a seat of emotions. But in the Bible, the heart is the center of the whole person. The Emmaus disciples were saying that they had a transformational, personal encounter with the Lord. They felt love and they felt hope and they felt peace that they'd never experienced before. And when did they feel it? When they understood what the scriptures really meant. In the New Testament, when you see phrases like, according to the scriptures, it is saying this whole story was all about Jesus the whole time. Now we can understand this glorious thing that God had been doing about his creation that was tarnished and twisted by sin and how he set to work patiently on a centuries-old plan of redemption, about how it began with one man, Abraham, and one family, and one country, Israel, and one culture. And through them, he would bless the whole world. At last, when Jesus came, God was bringing salvation to everyone. There are only two ways to read the Bible. You can read it as if it's all about you and what you must do to be blessed. And if you read the Bible in that way, there's a chance it may lead you into a kind of a cold and legalistic lifestyle. Or you can read every part of the Bible as if it's all about Jesus and what he has done for you. Jesus was saying to those travelers on the road to Emmaus that it's not about them or what they do. It's about him. And Jesus is saying to us today that it's not about us or what we have to do. It's about him and what he's already done. I believe that trusting the authoritative word of god is essential to a warm and personal relationship with christ when people are in crisis in a hospital bed in a jail the bible is the book that gets read even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me when a baby is born or when a loved one dies when a marriage begins or when it breaks, when faith is found or when hope is lost, God's word is true, and it has power. God's word accomplishes the creation of life, the conviction of sin, the accomplishment of hope, power in weakness, and guidance in darkness. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light upon our path. It is the story that gives your story and my story and every story meaning. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you have not hidden yourself from us. You reveal yourself through what you have made, through the wonder of your creation. You reveal yourself most vividly through the person of Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, through his grace and his truth. You reveal yourself through the Holy Spirit, speaking in a still small voice within us. And you reveal yourself through your Holy Word. God, we pray as individuals and as a community that we would treasure the Bible. Cause us to be shaped by and formed by all of your truth. Lord, guide us by your word and convict us by your word and feed us by your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray, let it be so. Amen. Go with the intention to be faithful to Jesus, to carry his love and extend it to your family, to your friends, to those you meet along the way who are in need. Go with courage and with the resolve not to sin, and go with the exciting reminder that at any moment, Jesus Christ may come again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good Sunday.